Tender Hockey Podcast, an old goalie's views on the week that was in the world of hockey, from junior right up to the NHL and everything in between. There may have been a few too many frozen pucks to the head, but that won't stop this old tender from giving his two cents worth on all things hockey. The Flailing Tender Hockey Podcast, show number three, part of the 1420 group of shows. Uh, got a guy in the show that today that I haven't seen for 26 plus years, played in 10 different leagues, over 14 but professional seasons. Uh, player from 1996 in the pros, on and on. Scholastic Player of the Year for the Bonneville Pontiacs. Only guy who opened a book, I think, or had a pen back in those days. But uh, happy to have an old teammate of mine for the 92-93 season of Bonneville Pontiacs. A uh, guy we called Gordy around the dressing room. Blair Manning, happy to have you on the show. Blair, how you been the last 26 years or so? All good, man. Just living the dream. Living the dream, buddy. The uh, last time we saw each other, I think we were talking off air a little bit, was uh, a Club Mal- Club Malibu University, I think, back in 1996. I don't even know if that place even exists anymore. We were getting down in there one night after whatever festivities were going, we just kind of ran in, in, into each other. Is that place still going going around? or did you, that, You're probably out of that realm of things now. I am out of that realm of things. It is not going on anymore. It was a very sad day when it did go under because we were still kind of in that realm of things. So that was uh, that was a very sad uh, chain of events that happened there. But uh, it was quite the spot. We spent a lot of time there back in the day. That Club Malibu. There was three or four of those different places. What a scuzzy bunch of places. Anyways, we'll get into the hockey realm of things. Uh, Blair, you started in 1991 with the Bonneville Pontiacs expansion team. Back then, you, uh, you th- th- it was their first year. You were 16 years old. You uh, decided you were from Sherwood Park. You decided not to play midget hockey. How did you end up on an expansion team in Bonneville, Alberta from Sherwood Park? What was the chain of events that led you to, to becoming a Bonneville Pontiac? Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny how things happen. Uh, I played on a pretty uh, hot shot Bantam AAA in Sherwood Park, we had uh, Jason Padola and Mike Dubinsky, both Lancal brothers, Scotty and Damon, Mark Hurley, uh, Nolan Pratt, who just won the Stanley Cup there in, in uh, Colorado as a coach. Uh, so we, we had a, a really good Bantam AAA team, and I was kind of like a third-line guy there, just kind of did oh, my, that lineup, did my thing. Oh, and, and wow. it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was it was tough. There's a few more names that I'm missing too. Brad Symes, Curtis Cardinal. I think 11 guys went on to play in the Western League. It was quite a group. So uh, there was a local guy from Sherwood Park that had been, he was from Bonneville. Uh, Jason Denny was the boy, Bonneville, and he really liked the way I played. And so he told the guys in Bonneville, like, you, you need to take a look at this guy. And uh, so I went to spring camp there and, had a pretty good showing and uh, you know Chris Barnes at the time was a general manager he he wanted to have a couple young guys and I he kind of said that I would probably be I would be one of the one of the young guys so it just happened all really quickly I went to camp in Tri-Cities that year but I was pretty sure that I wanted to go to college so it was just more for the experience of getting shape and uh, ended up in Bonneville and that's kind of where she all started yeah because that the Alberta League back then was mainly a uh 18 to 20 year old league not a lot of 16 year olds played in that league back then because it was a it was a it was a rough and tumble uh, way to go back in those days it was uh it was a fighters league who was the guy like you're 16 years old you get into that league an expansion team who was a guy who took you under their wing a little bit uh, your first time away from home the whole bit who was a guy who you can kind of go uh, you looked up to as a big brother with that cast of characters your first year uh i mean i guess my two roommates i, I lived with jason dixon and mike crespain they're both pretty <laughs> colorful guys i think they were into they were they were a little bit more life experience than I was, but they they were good. They they kind of saw that I was young, and they shielded me from a lot of the stuff that you can get dragged into in the small towns. And of course, I was going to school, so um, uh, I was really the only one going to school that first year. I think maybe when uh, Nolan Pratt came a little bit later, he and I were going to school. But um, you know, so I, I had my kind of had some priorities I had to do, and uh, but those guys are really good. They looked after me. Crespin was, you know arguably the toughest guy in the league. So it was nice having him kind of ride shotgun there because there was a lot of nights where, where he'd, uh, you know, he'd look after me on the ice. No one, no one was really allowed to, to do too much to me. So that was, that was kind of a nice insurance policy for sure. Yeah. When I showed up the the second year there, when you were your second year in Bonneville, it was my first in 92, 93. Crespain was the first guy that I met. He came to the rink and uh, he took me out for, for dinner and, uh, 
I didn't know what the heck I was getting myself into when Crespain showed up with his stupid all the all the stuff that Crespain brought along. It was it was something to behold. That guy he was a, he was tough. That guy was so tough. He was tough, man. Like just and he liked he liked it too. He kind of had that persona built up around him on the ice, and you know he's missing the teeth. All the stereotypes of a junior hockey tough guy. Like he was just kind of looked like that, and and he really took that to heart and I mean he could play he could play too he was he was probably a better player than people gave him credit for but back then there was you know like he and Chili and a couple of those guys Scotty Davidson like that those guys were tough dudes so we we had a lot of guys that if things got got dirty down and dirty we could you know we could handle it a little bit so that's well, yeah that like that second year you look you you mentioned some names there like uh Schneiden, like Maurice Chili Schneiden, uh Crespain Scott Davidson uh Trembecki Mark Hansen they didn't mind dropping the gloves we didn't win a lot but boy could we uh we we put up a lot of penalty minutes that uh that second year like a lot of penalty minutes was there any like who was the guy that you thought geez I'm out with this guy, like with with, with Schneiden, because he would punch holes. That one night we were out and having a, a couple of beverages, maybe we shouldn't have been. I, and Chili, I think he punched, tried to punch his uh, uh, garage door or something, if I recall correctly. Like those guys were absolutely nuts back then. Hundred percent, they were nuts, and it was something. It was nothing I had seen being a younger guy. Like we just, I hadn't seen that. I didn't really have that many guys that were kind of crazy or super tough like that, or had kind of grown into their bodies and were essentially men, and so kind of get to Bonneville and you got this whole colorful cast of characters that like to have a good time and, and, and fight their way home and, and same on the ice, you know, they'll compete. And when things wanted to, people wanted to get down and start fighting, they, they just loved it. So it was, it was new to me. You know, you'd heard been to a couple spring camps the years previous. So I'd seen what the hockey world was like. You know, it's, it was a, it was eye opening event for sure. Yeah, I remember one face-off. I think we were playing Fort Saskatchewan uh, on a Sunday afternoon, and I, and I looked. There was Trembecki, Hansen, Jigger was out there. Uh, there was two, uh, two, and I went, "Oh, I know exactly what's going to happen here." And sure enough, all hell broke loose, and there was some. There was a, a lot of uh, a bad stuff happening. I, and they, like I'm not ton, like I weighed 140 pounds back then. I wasn't a very like I was six foot two, and I was like, "Oh man, don't!" I hope the other goalie doesn't want to come down and take me out because he's he's going to win. It was it was absolutely nuts. Yeah, your second year, you lived with Harry York and Pete Balish at Oscar and Wanda's, correct? When when you uh, when we that's when correct, we, yeah, good memory, yeah. Yeah, when we played, and she had those, she made those cookies all the time, ginger snaps. Remember those? Unbelievable. I don't yep. know why I remember that, but uh, my career wasn't that memorable, so I remember the cookies. But uh, you, you live with a guy, Harry York, who I had on the show a couple weeks back. When you played with Harry, did you go, man? Why is this guy on our team? Why is this guy in this league? Why isn't this guy playing somewhere? Or was Harry to you just another guy playing in in, in junior eight at that point? Well, it's a little bit of both there. I mean, Harry was obviously a special player. Um, you know, at the house there, Swift, he was listed by Swift Kern, and they were calling every night for him to go to yeah. Swift Kern. And I love Harry. Obviously, he was a big asset to our team, but we weren't doing that well. And Harry wasn't wanting to go to school. You know, he wanted to play college hockey, and I would try and drag him to school every day, and he didn't really want to go. He wasn't too yeah. interested in that. So, I kind of sat him down and I'm like, dude, why are you here? Like, why don't yeah. you go to Swift Current? Like, you're not going to go to college. You're not going to get a college scholarship because you don't want to go to school. Swift Current wants you to play. Like, we're losing. Like, why Why don't you go? And he just, he was kind of a quirky guy. He's like, I like being a big fish in a small pond and you know, I'm enjoying it here and everything's good. And I never really understood that. Uh, obviously, it worked out for him. So it doesn't really matter. But uh, yeah, it was, yeah. It, was, it was, he was, he was a good player, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, he, he was he was a great player, and then I think, obviously, the, the year after, um, he played with that Steve Walker. I'm not yeah. sure if you were back there or not, but yeah, he, I was he just yeah. kind of, he went crazy, so, yeah. Yeah, no, it was crazy. When I first saw him on TV a few, like a few years later, I was like, what the hell happened here? Cause I thought he was basically done after playing, uh, playing and playing junior in Fort Scott or in Fort McMurray. Sorry. Uh, you ended up your first year or your second year in, in Bonneville. You're all done. Me and you played for a year together. Uh, you went to that Cal, that Calgary selects or whatever that was called. Uh, that camp that, that went to Boston, I believe. And you ended up uh, going to UMass. Uh, that kind of came out of nowhere, did it not? It really did. Like I was, I didn't know what to do. My, my parents didn't really want me going back to Bonneville for an 18 year old year, just cause dad was oh. big on school. He wanted me to, to, to carry on and start going to school, whether, however that may be. So he kind of was wanting me to go 
get traded to um, a local team here so I could take some classes at university. And we went to uh, Yorkie and I went to that Dynastars tournament. Yeah, that's what it was UMass was coming in another, ironically, another uh, expansion team. So they were, it was a non-recruiting period, but because they were a new team starting in the fall, they were allowed to recruit at that tournament. So there was three or four of us, a kid from Humboldt, a kid from uh, St. Albert, and a kid from BC that um, we all signed in UMass uh, for that coming coming year. So yeah, it, it really did come out of come out of nowhere. Um, it was funny because I I signed in UMass. Uh, was obviously excited to get a college scholarship. I was a little concerned that they were an expansion team again. I had just gone through two pretty long years in Bonneville, and then I got home and the, the recruiting period opened up, and I had offers from Michigan and Denver and Boston University and schools like that. So I was kind of like, uh, kind of jumped the gun here a little bit, but. Yeah. Anyways, it was good. Kind of. Well, you got to take it while you can. Your first year there, you, you you played the one year there. What was what was the college experience like? Was it all you could that you thought it was going to be, or was it what was the biggest surprise leaving Bonneville and going to UMass? What was the biggest difference in comparison? I think for a lot of guys, it's just being on your completely on your own, right? Even in Bonneville, you had said, you know, they we kind of had our own. You know, we lived our own life and stuff. They weren't really super uh, strict or stringent, but when you're at school, you're you're in the dorms and you're on your own. Like if you got schoolwork to do, there's the mom and dad aren't there, or the adults aren't there telling you to ask any what you got going on. So that was probably the biggest adjustment was just um, just just being on my own. I mean, it was a big school, it's twenty five thousand kids, and half of them lived on campus. So it was as expected. It was a great time and lots of fun to be had, and the the facilities are great. The hockey was good. Everything was kind of moving along well. 19 years old, you decide to leave UMass early in the season. You end up, you end up going to Seattle. What, what was your decision to, to leave UMass and end up in Seattle? And was it a, was it a midnight uh, see you later? What, what, what was the discussions you may have had with the coach or the coaching staff of the two teams? Because you leave UMass, they were probably a little bit surprised that you're leaving. And then, uh, like, how do you find yourself in Seattle? Cause you're probably listed, but what was the, the conversations like that with the, the coaching staff at first in UMass and then the, the coaching staff in Seattle when you go, I don't really like it here that much or it's, or, or it's time to move on, whatever the, the case may be. Yeah. So, well, the toughest call was to call home to my dad to tell him I was leaving school. Cause that did not go over well. Um, you know, he ended up, kind of coming around and saying, I'll support you, whatever you want to do. But the, the initial conversation wasn't, wasn't awesome. But I was um, back, back then in college, you couldn't even go on the ice until October. Um, so like you get there in August and you're doing a lot of dry land and stuff. You, you're not on the ice and all your, all my buddies from that, that band team I played on, they all went to the Western league and they're all, you know, 15, 17 games into their season. And I'm in a field with a volleyball doing a breakout pattern. And I'm like, I was just, I, I, I you know, we were struggling the second year. The first year we played a modified schedule. So we had some division two schools on there. We, and then we moved permanently. So we were playing Maine and BU and Boston college and all those powerhouse schools. And I could just, I could see that it was going to be a long road. Um, and I, I decided I wanted to kind of take a shot at hockey. And I figured the best way to do that was to, would be to go to the Western league. So I, I talked to actually a former teammate in Bonnie in Bonneville, Nolan Pratt, um, I told him, I said, Hey, listen, you know, I'm thinking about leaving school, talk to your coach or your GM, see if there's any interest. Cause at the time I wasn't listed. Um, he's like, okay, sounds good. Don't talk to anyone. Uh, he and Scotty Lanka were there that I played with. So he calls back. He's like, yeah, they're going to list you tomorrow morning and they're going to call you tonight. They want you to come. So I'm like, okay, cool. So in the meantime, my dad, who was not very well connected in the hockey world, he decides to go to the Crusaders game that night and tell people that I'm leaving school. Although I asked them specifically not to do that. Quiet, please. <laughs> so he started talking to some of the scouts that he kind of knew and, and, and he was pretty worried because at the time these scouts were like, well, I don't know if he can play in the Western league. He just tell him to stay at school. And so now my dad was pretty panicked because he's like, I'm in my mind, I'm already leaving. And now he's thinking I'm going to go to the Western league, be there for three or four games and get sent home and, and then kind of the end of the, end of the road or whatever. Happened, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. So anyway, the next morning I had to get a call from Seattle and they're like, Hey, we listed you. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what? I'm like, I thought I was going to Portland. They're like, well, we both put a claim in for your rights, but we're lower in the standing. So we get your right here. I thought I was going to Portland yeah. to play with, uh, it was the year of the, the NHL lockout. So, um, 
Jason Weimer and uh, Adam Deadmarsh were there. So I have, here I think I'm going to Portland to play with these guys, and now I'm going to a 1-13 team in Seattle if I'm, if I'm leaving school. So I call home and ask Dad, I'm like, did you tell anyone I was leaving school? He's like, ah, I might have told a few people. I'm like, perfect. Like, Thanks. Perfect. So anyways, at that point, I, I talked to the coaches at school. They were kind of urging me to stay. and But in my mind, I was already, I think there was a little bit deep-seated desire to play in the Western League. There had been a lot of people along the way that said that I wasn't good enough or wasn't fast enough or couldn't do this, couldn't do that. And I think that that was kind of mentally in the back of my mind. And I wanted to take a shot at it. So I left and went to Seattle and a few things fell into place there. Chris uh, Chris Wells got sent back from Pittsburgh, and Chris Herberger came back as a twenty year old, and and we kind of went on a bit of a tear. And and uh, you know, unfortunately, I I kind of caught uh, you know I, I had had a lot of success in that first year. Yeah, you got ninety points in your in fifty eight games, whatever it was. I I checked some hockey DB, a little research on your on your Gordy. You had a good a good like a great season actually. The way things turned out, Darren Quint, who I met later on that summer, he was a uh, he was quite the character that you played with there in uh, in Seattle. He he spent a few weeks in Edmonton that we we hung out with him a little bit, and right when he first signed his uh, his contract with the Jets, so he had a little bit of dis- disposable income that summer, if, you, if I recall correctly. Yes, he did. He did, and he spent it. <laughs> he didn't mind it at all. No, there was no doubt about that. Hell of a player. Uh, you ended up in, back in Seattle, your 20-year-old year. Uh, things didn't go as, as uh, they hoped, I guess. You end up uh, in all places in Medicine Hat, Alberta, playing with the Tigers, and a guy by the name of Rocky Thompson. Uh, what was your time in, in Medicine Hat? It was short-lived, but what was your time in Medicine Hat like? And then uh, playing with a guy like... Uh, 260 penalty minutes that I think he had that season. Rough and tumble guy. He's still coached with the Flyers, I think, does he not? Rocky? Anyways, he's uh what was your time like in Messing Hat? And then like yeah. what what, what, yeah, what, yes. what was Rocky like? Um yeah, so Medicine Hat was a little bit of a surprise again. I had kind of been told uh the coach and the GM were fighting in Seattle. The coach wanted to to make a run for it. The GM wanted to build around Patrick Marlowe was there and I was kind of like, I was fortunate enough. I was the captain that year. So I was in some of the con- those conversations and I was just kind of like, why are you building around Marlowe? Like he's going to be here for two years and he's gone. Like he's ridiculous. He's so good. Was that your first like, thought when he showed up? Like, holy cow, who's that? Like, let's go did, for it. Did you? Did Anyways, you know me, the coach and I kind of lost out on that bid. No, I didn't. Like they, the coach called me in the summer and he's like, wait till we see, wait till you see who we have to play with you next year. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Who's like, is someone leaving school? He's like, no, our 16 year old rookie's going to play on your wing. And I'm like, uh, how good can this kid be? 16. And the first time I saw him, I was just like, oh my, like, this kid is ridiculous. He was so good. So I was like, okay. So we played together and, and we're doing, you know, we're doing okay. And so anyways, GM decides they're going to move out all the older guys, uh, tells me he's going to trade me to Kamloops uh, to have a ch- shot at winning one more cup or winning. They were always the winning those back, back then, yeah. Exactly. So I, I kind of had everything packed up, and then I get a call right after the deadline saying I got traded to Medicine Hat, and then they were in 10th place in the East, and I was just, I was rattled, so rattled. Because I'm like, you know, I said you're going to trade me to somewhere I had a chance to win, and now I'm just going to play out the final 30 games of my junior career in, in the hat. So, anyways, I get to the hat and had a number of things. I <laughs> I had to drive through the night because they wanted me there for the next night. So I get there. I just, I, it was like 24 hours of got a actually a speeding ticket in Fort McLeod. So <laughs> that's my hometown, Gordy. Yeah. And I get there. I go. Drive right to the rink. I've been driving all night right to the rink for a game, and I get in an argument with the trainer. I had these really thin shoulder pads I used to use, the same ones I used in Bonneville. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, you're not wearing those. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never been injured in my life. I'm like, I'm wearing these. I'm 20 years old. You're going to tell me what I'm going to wear. Fuck off. So, sure shit. I hit a guy, roll off him, and hit it, hit into the boards on the top of my shoulder, blow my AC joint, and about my seventh shift in medicine hat. So I'm like... You've got to be kidding me. I don't tell anyone because I am embarrassed. B, I'm like, yeah, they were wanted, didn't want me to wear these shoulder pads. Yeah. So I get through the game, go to my new billets house. They have three cats. I'm like definitely allergic to cats. So like, I got a shoulders blown out and my head is like this big because I'm allergic to cats. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, for the first time in my life, I'm like, do I want to play hockey anymore? Like, is this, 
it gets better. There's one more thing. So the next night, same thing. I don't 35 or something ridiculous. I'm awful. Cause I got one arm get back from Calgary. It's like three in the morning. I'm annoyed. I got to go back to the cat house, jump in my car, a little Honda prelude, blow through a red light and get T-boned. So no. it's like, Oh my God, man, this medicine ad place is going to be the death of me. Yeah. So those oh. four things happened in about 36 hours from getting traded to Seattle. So anyways, I went and told the, finally told the team I hurt my shoulder and they're like, well, you're playing. I said, I didn't say I wouldn't play. And so they just duct taped my shoulder down and threw a big pair of Donzi shoulder pads on me and put me out on the ice every night. And so that's, that's what happened. The hat would, they, they had some really lean years back in the, in the mid early to mid nineties. They weren't very good at all. And then they had some more success later on, but they had some lean, lean years and there like they were they were a tough team and playing the old arena well the old arena is a great great old great old junior barn they're, they're out of there now but no it was uh the hat so you get done playing junior your the the junior career is over like for most most of us it comes to an end when you turn 20 and you go well now what uh did you have any especially after your first year Blair, let's go back there after your first year in seattle you're 19 years old you get 90 points did you have any pro interest uh, from clubs back then to, to, to not to not play your 20 year old year like how how that did that come about because usually the, you, there's only there's only so much room for 20 year olds in in the league did you have any pro interest back then when you were when you were 19 turning 20 yeah so i was actually rated in the fifth round of the draft but obviously i was kind of a double overage being 19 so um i went to the draft large mistake the draft was in Edmonton, so I didn't travel to it. But because it was in Edmonton, I went to the draft, and I sat through the draft, watched a lot of guys get drafted, and I was just, like, perplexed. Like, why would someone take a shot at a shot at, on me? But, um, you know, that's human. Sat through the draft, didn't get drafted, and then right away I started kind of getting free agent invites. So I went to camp in Calgary uh, with the Flames. Uh, they were redoing the saddle dome that year, so I was out in uh, in New Brunswick, where they're in St. John, New Brunswick, where their uh, their HL team was, and I had a really good uh, a really good camp. And they kind of like when the AHL camp ends, like after you get sent down from Calgary, the AHL camp ends. You're kind of in limbo if you don't have a contract. So they were they were wanting me to hang around and around or what they were doing because they they were sorted everything out with their draft picks. Don Hay was coaching in Calgary, and I think he really liked me from the years playing against him in uh, in uh, Kamloops. But um, Seattle was kind of bugging me, like, you know, you're going to be the captain. You're starting to miss games. Like, why don't you come back? Why don't you come back? And I I had an agent, but, I mean, I wasn't a high-profile guy, so I don't I don't really think I got great advice from him. And I should, probably should have stayed and stuck it out and said, I'm like, well, you know, I'll just go back to Seattle. And, of course, I was – not dreaming that I would have a, a drop off from the year prior. I thought we were going to, you know, I was going to have a really big year and, and kind of try and figure out, figure out my way that way. So I went back to Seattle um, and then played that 20 year old year and that kind of everything sorted out and went to medicine hat and ended there. Yeah. Wait, so when you get done there in the hat, do you, like you go, okay, now what was there ever a point you go, like seriously, now what? Like was like, what am I gonna do? Like, is was it? Do I gonna get a job? Am I gonna play hockey? Because you, you were always a hockey guy, hockey centric. When we we used to to hang out, and you you were never like it wasn't a, a thought that you weren't going to play hockey. But was there a point after your your twenty year old year you go, well, I guess this is it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had my school money, so I had a number of teams, like Canadian college teams, that wanted me to go play. So I knew that I was going to be able to finish school or whatever that may be. Um, the Canadian national program used to still have a – they used to run a team every year, and they would put that team in the Spangler Cup. And yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so the Canadian national team was wanting me to go play on that team as well, which was a pretty good experience, so – I was deciding, I was enrolled at U of A, was kind of all squared away to go to U of A, still deciding about the national program. And then I've been fielding calls all summer from the East Coast League. And I was just kind of like, you know, I have school money. I'm not coming to the East Coast League. Like, no disrespect, but I, I got to do something with my school money. Like, if I'm going somewhere different, if I'm going to the American League or something, it's different, but you know, I'm not going to start in the East Coast League. So, um, good hockey lesson, good business. Uh, hockey is a business lesson here. So um, just, re just more ready to start school in about, I don't know, right at the beginning of September. 
uh, I get a call from Mike Keenan. I'm hung over. We were probably in Malibu with you one night. And <laughs> hung over. My dad's yelling downstairs like, Mike Keenan's on the phone. And I'm like, what? what is going on? So I pick the phone up and it's Mike Keenan. Hey, Blair, how you doing? You don't really want to bring you to camp. Okay, so that's a bit of a curveball. So I go to camp in, uh, decided to go to camp in St. Louis. Um, that's where Harry was. So Harry was, he had signed and he was going to St. Louis. So. I go to camp in St. Louis. I'm in St. Louis for two weeks. Again, have pretty good camp. Yeah, yeah. So I went to, uh, I was obviously great seeing Yorkie there. You know, I automatically had someone to, to kind of buddy around with. And he knew a lot of the NHL guys because he had finished as a black ace the year before in his kind of remarkable rise there. So it was neat. We got kind of got included on some of the stuff with the NHL guys and had a good camp. And then I went to Worcester and, I had a really good camp. Like I was leading the team in scoring. Was, I mean, like there was no no doubt in my mind that I could play at that level. And one of the older guys is like, "Man, you got a great camp. Like, have they talked to you yet?" I'm like, "No, I haven't heard anything." And he's just like, "Well, tomorrow's the first day of this regular season. They either have to release you or they Fine. have to sign you." So I'm like, "Oh, okay." I think in the morning, and I'm like. Where's my gear? I'm looking around the dressing room like I don't see my gear anywhere. And then I get the dreaded tap on the shoulder from the trainer. He's like, Yeah, the coach wants to see you. And I'm like, Oh, I wonder what he wants. And he's just like, Oh, kid, man. It's like you're you're about to die. You're about to get two bullets in the head here. And so I go in there still having no inkling that I'm getting released. Like I was that confident in the way I'd played. And he's just like, Yeah, well, you know, we gotta release you. And I was just like, What? And he's like, Yeah, he's like, You've had a great camp. He's like, I he's like, You surprised us. He's like, but we're at 50 contracts. We're at max contracts. We can't sign you. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, so you guys brought me to a camp when I had two other really good options. One was going to school and you guys brought me to a camp that I had no chance of making, no chance of being involved in this organization at all. Well, they really want you in Baton Rouge. And I'm like, uh, I'm not going to the Coast League. I'm like, as I told the coach in Baton Rouge, who ended up being Pierre, he was Pierre Maguire. I said, I told him all summer I wasn't going to the coast. I'm like, why would you guys bring me to camp? And I was, I was furious at this point because you know, I've, now I've missed a month of school, so I can't go back and catch up at U of A. I missed my opportunity to go play in the Canadian National Program because they have their team set. Yep. And so now I'm just like stuck. You know, I don't, I'm in a hotel room in Worcester, and I'm like, fly me home. And they're arguing, like, no, we're sending you to Baton Rouge. I'm like, fly me home. I'm not going to Baton Rouge. And so they're, they were like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, well, you guys weren't fourth, right? You weren't like, this is all just, this is all an elaborate scheme to get me to go to Baton Rouge. And I'm like, I was very clear with the options I had. Going. So I, I mean, I think I did pretty well standing up for myself, like given the, the, the situation, but I, I was mad. And then, so I got back to the hotel room and, and Pierre Maguire was coaching Baton Rouge and he started calling and calling and calling. And I'm just like, listen, man, I'm not coming to the East Coast. Well, anyways, he kind of started offering offering me pretty good money, I guess, like for for what you can get in the coast. So he's like, listen, and the final straw really was he, he kind of, he struck the chord on the fact that I love to play. Like I'm, I've never, up to that point, I'd never been injured. I'd never watched hockey. And he's just like, what are you going to do? You're going to go back and sit in Edmonton for two months and practice with U of A and then join them in January? He's like, you can come down here, play till Christmas, and if you don't like it, go back to U of A. Like you, yeah. you, you were allowed to do that. There was a, they had just implemented a one-year rule where you could go try pro for a year, well, and I you could come that. back and play in college. So he's like, "Why don't you just come here?" He's like, "It's eighty-five degrees out. You can go golf in, you know." Where he's like, "I'm going to have a young team. I'll try and move you up. I'll try and get you in other spots." And so I decided to go. I'm like, well, yeah, what am I going to do? It's October 4th. Like, I had no, I can't play hockey anywhere. They aged out a junior. Um, yeah. Now what? Yeah. Like, you season's on. I can't get back in school till January. So, okay, I'm coming to Baton Rouge. And, uh, hockey was was good. We had a young team. Pierre McGuire was, uh, I know he's very polarizing as a uh, media member, but he was an unbelievable coach. And he... He went to bat for me. There was another guy down there, Shane Knighty, and he all, every week he would bring us in his office and just start. He'd 
get on speakerphone and start calling American League teams. I remember the first time he did it, I was just sitting there just terrified, just thinking some guy in the American League, that guy sucks. Like, I don't want that yeah, guy. So you don't want to hear it, right? Yeah. No, no. So, but he was good. And he got me called up a number of times. And I just, like, January kind of came and went because I had, I had played – know a few games in the american league a few games in the old ihl and i just kind of figured i was going to get there so i never went back to school in january and next thing you know years later, years later you're you're still playing pro hockey yeah like what what was what was pierre Maguire like like you say he's a polarizing guy on the uh on, on television and everything else and like i used to like him a lot and in the last few years i don't know what it is i haven't been a big fan of his i don't know what it is with mcguire but he's uh like he's pulled what, what was he like to play with to play for was he like a good coach bad coach what was he like no, he was a great coach. He was very demanding. Like, uh, you know, East Coast League, probably not the best place for him to coach because there are some guys that come out of college and they're literally doing that. It's like traveling the world for a year. They just want to play hockey for a year, yeah. golf every day, have fun. They have no illusions of going up to the next level. And then there's some guys that do so. But he was just like all development and let's get these kids out of here. So he, he leaned on guys big time. He was hard, hard nose to play for, but he disliked the way I played and he kind of turned me into a bit more of a kind of a checking forward where he's like, well, you're never going to be a scorer at the next level. So he's like, you need to be an agitator and run around and blow guys up and, you know, chip in 30 or 40 points and kill penalties, block shots and do that. So he kind of changed my game a little bit, but was fine. Um, you know, I, I probably, I, I probably went for it a little bit too, went overboard and, and didn't really try to keep, really being trying to be offensive that first couple of years. But um, yeah, I loved playing for him. Like he's, you know, he was there every day at the rink for us. He was working out. He had the standings on the boards. Like he ran it like a pro organization. He treated the guys well. Um, the one thing he did do, which I realized playing later on in years is he had a lot of young guys. So he ran it like a, more like a junior team where a lot of the other pro teams, like he could have beer on the bus and guys, it was like a vacation and it was not a vacation for us. It was like, no beer on the bus, you know, which is fine. Like, it's not a big deal. But yeah. as you get older, those little things are fun. When, like, nine, 1998, <clears throat> I was looking, you you played in uh, with uh, Nick Stajuhar, who was a, he was a first-round, like, high draft pick with the Oilers. And he went in, in the Coast League five years after he was drafted in the first round. What was going through that guy's head, do you think? Like, to be a, a first-rounder, you think he got the world by the balls, and then five years later, you're you're down in the Coast League playing there. Like, what? What do you think was going through Stenderhar's head to, to keep going? It, it, it couldn't have been easy on a guy like that. No, it, it, it wasn't. Um, you know, he, he he always thought he was he was still that first-round pick. He was, he was a bit of an interesting teammate for sure. He was still involved with, like, he was uh, one of the bars in town. I don't know if you remember Barry Tease back in the oh, day. Yeah. He got punched out by some bouncer in front of there that knocked him out and claims kind of derailed his career. So he was still involved in legal case with that. And he had other stuff on the goal. Um, but he, he didn't really thought he should be there. He kind of thought he was better than everyone. And, and, and realistically on the ice, he probably was, he just couldn't, couldn't really keep himself together off the ice. Like he liked the bottle and he did stupid shit when he drank. So the space and, between the years wasn't very strong. Uh, you, you, you bounced around the, the central league, the international league, the American league. When you're in the American league and you got those few games and you say, I, I can do this or like, I, I can do this. I have a chance of being an American League player and maybe be, be a step away if you have a good game in the American League or a good week in the American League. You can end, end up with a, a cup of coffee in the National Hockey League like Harry did. Did you ever think, man, I, why aren't I up here? Like, why aren't I playing in this league? Uh, yeah, I did for sure. Like, I I mean, I, I felt very comfortable when I played up and um, you, wouldn't get, you wouldn't get to play that much. Um, so it was tough to really show what you could do. But... I was always kind of a guy that would was able to adapt to whatever level it was. And I, I just needed someone. I really needed Pierre, to be honest, to keep coaching. Like after that first year, he got in a big fight. A lot of it was over me with our owner and he quit coaching, went into media. Had he gone up, I know like you hear stories of guys like that where they kind of bring guys up with them. And he, he definitely, I think, would have done that. So I was a little unfortunate, but 100%, uh, I, I felt that I could play. Uh, it's just so many different things. You need to be in the right place at the right time. Teams are, have lots of money and time invested in their draft picks. Um, I mean, the best the, the best shot I ever got to play was in Utah in the American League for Don Hay, who was formerly a coach in, in, in the Western League. And I played four games at the end of the year. 
And then I played all five of the playoff games and he just, he loved me. Same thing. So the following year I had already signed to go to Oklahoma, Oklahoma city. And he's like, well, I want you to come to camp. And I'm like, I'm 27. Like, you know, I mean, really? And he's like, I want you to come to camp. I'm like, okay, I'll come to camp. So I went to camp, had an unreal camp. Um, and he calls me in and he's like, we're signing you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like at this point, we had already had our place in Oklahoma City. Jose, my wife, was in Oklahoma City. We didn't have any kids yet, but she was already down there. And I'm like, she wouldn't have been upset at all. Like, nope. we like, no, she would have been fine with that. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, so yeah, I, he's like, you deserve to be here. He's like, I love the way you played for me last year. He's like, I want you to be here. I think you can be, you can be a bit of the heartbeat of the team, and then you're you're in. And I'm like. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm finally going to make the American League as a 27 year old. So I go home and kind of deal with Jose and she's happy, but there's lots of things we've got to figure out. Next morning, I get a call at 6.30 in the morning and it's coach Don Hayes. Like, you got to come down to the rink. And I'm like, okay, cool. I wonder what that is. Because he had the night before, he's like, you know, just, do you have an agent? I'm like, no, I don't have an agent. He's like, okay, well, I can't imagine the offer is going to be super lucrative, but we'll figure it out. So he calls me back in. He's like, he's like, I don't even know what to say, but he's like, I got to release you. And I'm like, <sighs> I'm like, what? And he's just like, he's like, I went, he's like, all I can say is I went absolutely to the mat for you. And he's like, the final conversation I had with Dallas, it was a split team between Dallas and Florida. Yeah. He's like, the final conversation I had with Dallas is like, if you sign them, we're firing you. And he's just like, it's not about you. It's about the fact that they want the draft picks to play and they don't want a 27 year old rookie. And he's like, I'm so sorry that I told you that. He's like, you deserve to be here. And I'm yep. just like, oh, I just cut your heart out. So I'm like, okay, well, I knew I had a good place to play in Oklahoma City. So I kind of packed up and limped my way back to Oklahoma City. And, um, Utah ended up signing me to a two-way contract to help Oklahoma City with the salary cap, and I didn't get one game up. And I it was, but I think I had eighty or ninety points in Oklahoma City. I was kind of surprised because I know that Hayes liked me. At the end of the year, I kind of called their general manager and said, "Oh, you know, thanks for signing me or whatever." And you know, I kind of, kind of was hoping I'd get a few games, but I understand. He's like, uh, he's like, yeah, just so you know, he's like, I don't know where you're going to play next year, but he's like, we tried to call you up five times last year, and I was just like what he's like yeah he's like well you were injured i'm like i played every game i was like i was never injured yeah it's like well one time you're sick one time you're injured one time you guys were on the road it's like the last time your coach hung up on us and so i was just like like went completely sideways i was so mad and he's like the last guy we called up was here from christmas on he was a centerman he's like we wanted that to be you and uh, he's like so might want to go have a coach chat with their coach. And the coach was an old Western League legend, Doug Sauter. Oh, I remember him. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he just about fought. I was so mad that he would do that. And again, it's yeah, the big handlebar mustaches. Yeah, yeah, I remember and he'd have him. the ranching gloves on the ice, and and we just had it out. And I'm, uh, you know, I at that point I was probably never going to play, and he can probably get you a pretty lucrative deal over in Europe. So. It was it was basically taking money out of out of my and an opportunity away from me and I we just yeah we had it out big time and he's just like well I need to win games like I'm like that's bullshit that's not your decision like you so that was business hockey's a business lesson number two yeah like the, the, that, that's what I was gonna ask you like before you, you you covered it for me like the the way that it works and the, the contracts they they sign these guys and they got to stick with these guys because they somebody with a great big brain said that this kid's good and this so we have we have to give this guy shocks we've invested money in him or whatever it may be because draft picks are draft picks are lucrative if they if they work out great and they don't well they, they get a they get a goal and it's it's crazy how um how that happens so much in, in the hockey world. I'm sure other sports as well, but we're more in, in, entwined with the, with the hockey end of things and the way that those contracts go and, and the way that they sign guys and you, you go, what the hell's going on? And why don't I get this chance? Why don't I, but then they, they, the, the, the powers that be, they make so many decisions that are just based on, on money and, and their own, their, their own interests. It, it kind of, it kind of puts a screw to people, especially when you get, to, cause you only have X amount of years to play. Right. And before you end up being just a, a guy that's like, a, a, that doesn't even get to play anymore because yeah. they, they think that somebody's better or has the potential to maybe be better. It, it's not, 
and it's it, it's not right. Like to, you think you you're putting a team together, you want the best possible team you could possibly have, but it, they think development for some reason is uh, is is the most important thing, and I've never understood that. Yeah, for sure, and I mean that's one of the things that uh, I mean I love hockey. I still love hockey. I'll always love hockey, but it was one of the things that really it really hurt that, that there was that much stuff that went on like that. Um, and, and there are guys that found their way through, you know, you hear Martin St. Louis and guys like that, but it does happen where guys find a way through all that. At the end of the day, I probably wasn't good enough, but I'm a pretty, pretty honorable guy. Like if you tell me something, I'm expecting that it's, it's truth. It's the truth. And you know, I'll kind of give you the benefit of the doubt until, until I have any reason not to. And, and that really kind of hurt. There was, the guys would do that just to, to further their career or to to cover up the fact that they drafted a guy they shouldn't have drafted, um, you know. And I always I always kind of wanted to stay in in hockey. I always decided if I ever stayed in hockey that I would never I would never mislead anyone. I would never I would just be as black and white as I could. And some of those conversations can be difficult, but I would rather I always would rather have known. The, the, the truth going into things than finding out afterwards that something wasn't on the up and up. So was that the biggest that, surprise uh, for you, Gordy? Was, was, was not knowing ahead of time that, that that's the way the business was. And like, was that the biggest surprise once you got into pro hockey? Like these guys don't really give, they don't care a whole bunch about the players so much. And, and they're, it, and going into it uh, without a contract, you're thinking, okay, why am I here? And not, not the lies, but the deception, like you, you led to, was that the biggest surprise to you when you went, when you, when you, and looking back now, was that kind of like, Jesus, what the fuck are these people doing? 100% biggest surprise. It caught me so off guard. Um, that Especially that first one in Worcester when I, like, I, I mean, <laughs> I know that I belonged on that team. And uh, there are other instances along the way there where you'd see guys get traded or things happen where you're like, yeah, they don't really care too much about the person. They're, you're, you're an asset. They'll use you until you, they can't. They don't have any need for you and then you know they'll find someone else and um yeah that's it wasn't awesome to to kind of discover that i guess yeah like you, you bounced around the chl for the, the central league for a while you end up in detroit with the uh in 0405 during the lockout with the uh motor city mechanics of all teams they they were only around for a couple of years i think right yeah that, so you end up there for a, for, for a season. The, during the lockout, like I said, guys like uh, Smolinski, Avery, Chelios, Darian Hatcher end up playing a few games with you guys. What was it like playing with, uh, first off, we'll, we'll start with Chris Chelios, and I'm, I'm hoping he picked up the odd bar tab now and then. Well, it's funny. Both he and, and Darian Hatcher both had their own pubs within like 15 minutes of where we lived, so they picked up a ton of bar tabs yeah. for the fellas. Uh, they treated us very well. They were super they had kind of gone through the the accident there after the Stanley cup. So drinking and driving was, I mean, I mean, it's shouldn't do it anyways, but that was their one kind of rule. They would have a driver for the guys and they took care of the guys every night, like no drinking and driving. But uh, yeah, they were, they were awesome. There are, Charlie also was amazing. He was, he's kind of an anomaly. I think he was 43 or something at the time. He was in the best shape of anyone on our team. Uh, it wasn't even close. Uh, he was hanging out with Kid Rock still at that time. He and Kid Rock are big buddies. Bring Kid Rock to our game all games all the time, and he would Crazy. be partying with him every night. And no matter what, he would have already by the time he got to the rink to our practice, he would already ridden the bike in the sauna for forty five minutes before he got to the rink. Like he was trying to retrofit. We played in an old, it was basically a minor hockey rink in, yeah. in Motor City, and he was trying to get them to put a sauna into our dressing room and stuff. Like it was just, it was comical. It was fun. It was super fun though. What was uh, what was Sean Avery like? Was he uh, everything that's expected? Was he, was he kind of a? Uh, oh, I don't want to say the wrong. I'll say the wrong. Was was he a bit of a dickhead? Hundred percent. He was. I wish he wasn't, but yeah, he was. He was a complete and utter self-absorbed idiot. Like the worst. He didn't, he didn't treat anyone with respect from the people working, you know, the volunteers working for the team. He wouldn't sign things. He's just, he was the biggest donkey ever. And it's too bad because he was, he was a hockey player, man. He, that guy could play. He was yeah. tough. He could do everything. And I was just like, before I kind of realized really the way he was, I kind of asked Chelios one night, I'm like, why did you guys get rid of this guy? Like Detroit's a pretty old team. He's a younger guy. He's, Lots of spirit. He's like, oh man, wait for a week. Like, this guy's an idiot. And I'm like, okay. So 
wait for a week and see he's an idiot. But he said, Chelios kind of went on to elaborate. He's like, well, the final story was he was he getting scratched one morning and he was pissed off. And so Steve Eisenman was still playing. He went down to talk to Avery about, um, you know, to keep his head up and keep into it. You're still part of the plan and stuff. And he just lost it on I like Eisenman. He's like, why don't you, why don't you old guys retire so I can get some freaking ice time and just lost it. And so I'm like, what did Eisenman do? He's like, he just turned, skated off the ice, took his skates off, walked up to the office, to Ken Holland's office. And he's like, Sean Avery was in Los Angeles by 1 PM that afternoon. I'm no like, way. Yeah. I'm like, got it. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah he, he would just- be chirping. He would be chirping the other team, like, you losers all play at this level. Like, what a bunch of losers. And I'd be like, dude, we got 15 guys on our bench that are, that are at this level. level, too. Like, what are you doing? Oh, I, I don't mean you guys. I, don't, I just mean them. Oh. That bad. Like, yeah. no, I, he never came across as a good guy, and it turns out he, he wasn't. Because usually if it, if it looks like a duck and swims like a duck, it's usually a fucking duck. But anyways, yeah. No, I, you ended up in Europe for a year. Uh, how did you end up over there, and what was that experience like? What it was, was really good. Like? Uh, fans were awesome. It was, it, was, uh, it was the old kind of super league there in in Europe. Um, kind of they, they we had everyone had a couple tough guys. It was good hockey. A buddy of mine that I played with in Oklahoma City was over there, kind of as a player coach. And I had had chances to go to Europe in the past. I never wouldn't say they didn't appeal to me, but by this time Jose was traveling with me and I didn't want to go somewhere where you only had two or three imports. And if a lot of them times they're Eastern European that didn't speak English. So that really didn't appeal to me looking back probably a little bit, probably regret that a little bit that I didn't, didn't spread my wings a little bit more in Europe, but in, in England, you could have 10 imports. It was English speaking. So it was just kind of a natural, a natural fit. So I went over and decided to go over there for a year. I thought that would probably be my last year. I ended up playing kind of a couple of years beyond that, but went over there and, and we, there's little breaks in the schedule. So we traveled and went all over and saw different things and kind of our, our little, we were like a little bedroom community about 40 minutes outside of London. So we'd on our off days, we'd take the train into London and it was, it was eye opening. I had never really traveled to any of those major European cities and to see how big London and some of those, you know, some of those Italian cities are was, it was pretty cool. We had, a, we had a lot of fun doing that and the hockey was pretty good. You know, there's a lot of North American guys. Um, we were in a smaller market, so it was a little bit tougher for us to compete with uh, Belfast and Sheffield and some of the better teams, but um, it was good. I'm glad he did it. All right. You played for three more years after that. From your hockey DB says, uh, you had a really good season your, your last year. You, you you were up there with your team and scoring. Uh, what made you finally decide, yeah, I'm, it's, it's time to, to hang them up? But we had always kind of decided that we didn't want to have kids. We didn't want to start a family while I was playing. Uh, we'd seen guys had done it, and then and, and people had done it successfully. But there's a lot of transition between the schools, and you know, taking them back and forth. So we, we had decided that we would kind of we would just live our life there, and kind of uh, just the two of us. And whenever we got pregnant, would that, that was time to shut it down. So um, the last year. Uh, Jose had just gotten pregnant, so I kind of thought about not playing that year. But she was she was really like, "Well, I'm going to be pregnant all year. Like, let's go do one more year." And she she quite liked traveling around. We we went to different cities. That was by design, mostly so we could see different, live in different areas. Uh, it was also the only way you could control and get more money was to jump between leagues because you don't have your rights every year, so they can just kind of pay you whatever they want to pay you. But you could leave so um yeah so we decided to play that last year and then it was just like a complete sprint once we once we got home that year i i had already done a bunch of stuff for the to get on the fire department and a bunch of the the schooling and the the, um you know my getting my cost of driver's license and all that and you know son was born and onto the fire department and settled down at uh it was time to be a grown-up all of a sudden yeah 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 and i I was a player coach my last few years it was the same thing like i i part of me wanted to stay in hockey because i loved it but i just i couldn't picture us moving our family around everywhere you know like your coaches are hired to be fired and evidently you're going to be moving around i just i didn't really want that so um i had a bunch of lacrosse buddies i was playing 
senior lacrosse in the summers to stay in shape for hockey and probably eight or nine of those guys have gone on the fire department. They're like, man, this is awesome. You got to do it. So I, I kind of, that was my first actual real paycheck that I knew I was going to get every two weeks and yeah. wasn't performance based, which was amazing. There's, there you go. Just show up and you get paid. It's kind of crazy how that works. Yeah. Uh, you, now you're, 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 you're done playing. You got your boys, <laughs> uh, you're coaching uh, now. What's the, uh, What's it like now? Like, what's the biggest? I mean, it's everything's a lot different. But what's the uh, biggest difference now? From now that you're uh, you're coaching your kids and everything else, what's the biggest difference that you noticed from when you were a uh, young strapping minor hockey player to what it is today with the in the hockey world? Well, the dramatic monetization of the game is the biggest difference. Like, I just I cannot wrap my head around how much money and how many people make money off of hockey and off of kids and. And kind of, I mean, I, I equate them to to people that plan weddings and stuff. They're they're really just preying on your dreams. You know, a lot of people are uneducated. They don't understand how difficult it is to to play junior, let alone pro. And you know, these they're, they they kind of get sold like, well, your kid needs to do this, or he'll have no chance. And and it's it's just it's mind boggling the amount of money that people are spending and the, the amount of money that that people are extracting from people you know, on that the chasing the great Canadian dream. Like it's, it's just bizarre to me. Um, you know, I grew up when you played, played hockey and then hockey ended and your hockey bag goes away and you play baseball or lacrosse or football. And then when that ends, that goes away. And then hockey starts, like we did a lot of different things when we were younger, we played football, hockey and lacrosse. And I loved every season. I loved every sport. And I think it helped me in the long run because in hockey, I was an offensive guy. In lacrosse, I was more defensive. Um, football, I played defense. So it, it, you learn to fit, you fit into a different, you know, fit into a team in a different role. And I think that that's very important in life. You know, and that, that I mean, th- that's another problem that I see with the, the hockey the way it is now. A lot of these kids stay together on winter and spring teams and winter and spring teams, and they're only ever exposed to the same 17 kids. You know, they don't they don't learn how to how to fit around you know with with other people some of these kids are going to hockey academies so they go to school together too they don't they don't go to school with a kid that loves computers or a kid that is an artist that's that's a valid point yeah i just i just find that just crazy to just just hunker down in that same group of people and that's all you ever hang out with and i like we i've seen it here locally in shirt park my boys were a little they're a little bit older now um, but like the young kids are starting the spring hockey now for six and seven year olds. And it's just bizarre to me. It's complete. I, I've, I've never understood it. My nephew, he played for, uh, spring hockey for a couple of years and he got to a point like, what, what are we doing? And then like, he was a good, he was a good player, not a great player. And, I, and my, my, my sister basically went, what are we doing? Like we could put yeah. this money into something else. If he's good enough, he's going to make it. We don't need someone blowing smoke up our ass telling him, because if you're good, someone will tell you. If, if, if you're not good, you don't have to tell anybody. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's that thing. It's, it's crazy. Like you said, the amount of money that gets made off of all of these people, like, like we say in off air before we started recording, like this guy has the jerseys. This guy sells, sells the bags. This guy has this. This guy has a, a shooting academy. This guy has a skating academy and they're all intertwined somehow and they're all ma- making money. And there isn't any more, more college spots or pro spots. Then, then when then when when we played, there's actually less because now there's more of a, a European influence of, of kids playing. So it's, it's acts. It's actually insanity the amount of money that gets thrown at these things. And like you said, like I couldn't wait. Like once the season was over, uh, whether I was playing banter, midget, junior, whatever it was, uh, when the season was over, my bag went somewhere I didn't even know where it was half the time. Yeah, that good yeah. enough. I'm gonna go play baseball. I'm gonna go and have fun. I'm gonna go be a kid. And now these guys, it's it's a it's it's a full time gig for these kids, and with the with less hopes of making it. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, it really becomes. I mean it becomes our identity. Like when, when the kids that don't make it or they decide they've, they don't want to be in the rink a 300 days a year and they decide they quit hockey. Like they literally have no identity. They have no friends outside of what they've developed at hockey. They have, that's, that's who they are. They're a hockey player. Well, now they're 14, they're 15. They're not a hockey player anymore. And they don't, they're kind of lost. They, they have no, no identity beyond that. So I don't know. I, again, I, I, I'm probably old school. I preach into the old school because of the way that I grew up. I know that there's a balance somewhere in the middle. 
um, where I got to come one way and I wish that things would come back a little way. Um, but as long as people are going to spend money, I mean, if you think about the money, so spring hockey starts, you can start when you're six, it kind of dies off when you're 14. So that's eight years of, you know, two, 3000 bucks a year, say for spring hockey. For one you put kid. that away, like you, the kid could go to university for free. Never and that that doesn't even include your hotels, your food when you're going on the road, because hotels aren't aren't fifty five bucks a night like they were when we were playing hockey, Gordy. Yeah, that's true, <laughs> right? Like it's just, it's just it's it's absolute insanity the way it's all turned out. And it's like there was one kid that played with my nephew. He ended up going to one of those academies, and he got drafted by it was the Kootenay Ice back then, and he played up until his sixteen year old year. Before the season started, when he was seventeen, he told his parents, "I'm done. I'm out." They're like, "What?" Yeah. what we spent all this money over the years he goes i don't want to do it anymore like I just, and he doesn't have any friends or nothing like, just like you were saying like it's 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 crazy like, like <laughs> how how these people have to convince kids that this is what they want to do right it's, it's yeah. it doesn't make sense like, you have to want to go to the rink and it shouldn't be a financial thing you're going because we're paying for it it shouldn't be like that no and and that's the great differentiator and guys that go on is passion if you you can't instill passion in someone you just can't no matter what camps you send them to what what programs you throw at them, you can't instill that passion. And once you get, once it funnels up and all the players are pretty equal, passion's a differentiator. Those guys go on, those guys and girls go on to, to great things. And, and the ones that don't have it, you're not developing it. You're probably hindering it if you're they're doing stuff that they don't really want to do. So it's cool. I don't know, man. I got five quick questions for you. We'll end this interview. It's been a good, good, good catch up with you 26 years later. We'll have to go find a Barry Tease or a Club Mountain <laughs> sometime next time I'm in, I'm in Edmonton to get the uh, maybe a little more R-rated version of this. Uh, five quick questions. Here, one, uh, name a player that you thought when you, that you played uh, pro with that you thought, why the heck is he in this league? Why isn't he, why isn't he playing the National Hockey League? Is there one guy that you thought, this guy should not be in this league? Oh, that's a great question. Um... My probably buddy of mine, Mark DeSantis, there. He played at, at the kind of the minor league level, like I did all the time. Had all the tools. Great player. Tough. I I didn't understand why he couldn't couldn't play higher. Just just did something happen? Didn't? I just never fell never fell into place for him. Was going the flip side of that, Gordy? Is there a guy that you played with and you went, "How in the hell is this guy playing in this league?" Or how? Uh, or, or or even better, how in the hell is this guy? In the AHL, NHL level, you went, what the heck? What, what's going on here? Well, yeah, probably a guy, Boyd Olson. He's a local guy. He's a buddy of mine. Uh, so it's not, there's no disingenuity. Yeah. I can't even say the word, but I'm, I'm not upset. But yeah, he was kind of someone that just eked his way through every level. Wasn't a very good player in junior. And then played three solid years of the American League. Uh, for Unfortunately, had to retire uh, because he had concussions, but probably would have played in the NHL, and I, I never understood it. But great, good on him for finding a way. There you go. I guess if you never quit, you get a chance to play. Uh, toughest player you ever played with? Ooh, toughest player I ever played with. Uh, probably a guy named Rob Melanson. Uh, he had two other brothers. They were all crazy. They were from Anaganish. And yeah, he he beat people. He he had bad intentions when he fought. Good, nicest guy in the world off the ice. It was like a switch went on when he was on the ice, and he was an absolute killer. Never saw him. Never saw anyone. You him. always found that with the, with the really tough guys that they were nice off the ice, and then something just just once they put a helmet and gloves on, that was it. They just went bananas. Like it was a, a license to kill to, to kill for some reason. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. The nicest guys. Uh, most ridiculous thing that you saw on the ice. Most ridiculous thing I saw on the ice. Uh, we were playing in Wichita one night and, uh, one of their guys scored and he went by our bench doing a headstand, like a moving headstand. And one of the guys on our team javelin to stick at him during said headstand. <laughs> and nothing happened after that. I'm assuming in the, in the central league. Uh, it, Actually, not what I thought was going to happen, but uh, I'd never seen anyone do a headstand like that. Like he was like going across our bench on his hands and his head sliding across, like in full motion. That was it was it was pretty pretty impressive. That takes also, a little bit of talent. Uh, yeah. One guy that you played played against that you were actually scared of. Uh, 
uh, a few. Uh, a guy named Jim Laddish. He played down in the East Coast. He, he had played higher. I think he might have played a little bit in the NHL. He was scary. And, uh, yeah, he didn't know if he was going to finish your check, turn away, drive your stick through your eyeballs, or what he was going to do. Like, there was just that that aura of crazy that you're like, you gave him a wide berth. You were not sure what this guy was going to do. I don't think parents today understand, which is weird to me how parents don't understand that because back when we were playing junior and the like, and you went on to pro like that absolute maniacs. And I don't know why people our age don't understand what they might be getting their, their kids into because it was absolute mayhem back in those days. Mayhem. Yeah, it was crazy. It was cr- absolutely crazy. Like you, sometimes you wouldn't want the game to get too lopsided because you're like, ah, we got to keep this close. We don't want it to get go sideways here at the end. Completely out of hand. Anyways, Gordy, it's good catching up with you. We'll have to do it again. Now we got each other's phone numbers. We'll uh, we'll make sure if I'm in the Edmonton area or down the Lethbridge, we'll have to hook up for a, an adult beverage or two and catch up on some old times. Like I said, maybe get a little more R-rated to to talk about some uh, some times of the past because it was a lot of fun catching up with you today. Sounds good, Rads. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, man. Good talking to you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here.